when I was a kid, I loved to read. And I used to read a lot, especially between the ages of like eight and 12. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Living a Life Through Books, the podcast about everything bookish. I'm your host, Dr. Shanaz Ahmed, and today we have another bookish conversation. I'm talking to Hope from Philly. Her Instagram handle is Philly Book Fairy. If you are a regular to my episodes, you know that I've mentioned Philly Book Fairy before. She has DM'd me on Instagram about my previous episodes, and when she had a lot of questions for me about me, I decided to let her come on my show and chat with me and perhaps even interview me. Here's Hope in her own woods. Hi, my name is Hope, a.k.a. Philly Book Fairy on Instagram. I started reading again in December of 2017 and began looking up book reviews on YouTube, which led me to BookTube, which led me to Bookstagram. I started my Bookstagram in March of 2018. I also read and review books on my two new blogs, hopelesslyreading.blogspot.com and www.read-nana-read.com. Com. I'm excited to interview Dr. Shanaz Ahmed today and thrilled to have it posted on her podcast, Living a Life Through Books. The conversation went long, so I have broken it down into three parts. This is part two of three. And without further ado, let's see where this conversation goes. So can you tell me a little bit about, like, so when I think about my dad and how he did not get involved with the Greek community and you know to this day even though I've been thinking about it I haven't really asked him why you know it's funny to me how you just accept things and just don't even ask you know is there a reason and maybe there isn't a reason um but I knew that my dad um lived on an island his parents were very poor Mm-hmm. Um, there were, weren't a lot of opportunities for him there. He became a merchant Marine. So he got to travel around the world, wound up at a port, I believe in New Orleans during Mardi Gras, met my mom, went back on the ship for a year, but he got married to my mom a week later, went back on the ship for like a year. And then when the ship was docked in Canada, my mom drove up from New Jersey and snuck him over the border and brought him home to her parents and said, this is my husband. Um, and my grandparents were like, what? <laughs> and they just, they just loved him. You know, they, he was lucky. And I guess my mom was lucky too, that they all, they really, really liked my dad um, and were charmed by him. And he really, um, adopted them right back, like as his parents and took care of them and stuff and decided he wasn't going back on the ship. That was that. But it took him many, many years to decide to actually become an American citizen because they, he did almost get deported. And then when they finally gave him his visa, he still went back and forth for a long time about, do I really want to become an American citizen? Because when you become an American citizen, and a lot of people don't realize this, I'm sure you probably know, 
when you go through that process, they do make you pledge allegiance to the United States. And by doing so, you are renouncing in the eyes of the United States, you are renouncing your citizenship to your home country. And I don't think a lot of people realize that that's a big decision for a lot of people because, you know, where do your allegiances lie? You know, if you know you're never going to go back to your home country, what is the purpose of keeping that allegiance? But, you know, at the same time, if I left here and went to France to live or India or anywhere, I don't know that I would want to lose my American citizenship, you know, but it all depends on, I guess, um, what you're going to gain from that. And I, and I'm really surprised that he did that as well. I mean, he didn't do that until he was in the States for probably 20 years that he was here. Probably the first five were illegal. And then, the other 15, he just had a visa and was like, I don't want to be an American citizen. I think he was a little bit bitter about them trying to deport him and everything. But eventually, I don't know if it's because he got interested in voting or something like that, but he did wind up um, becoming an American citizen at some point. And my father's never been back to to Greece. And I've never been there. So it it's, to me, that's said you know like I, I want him to go back um but now he's a little bit um his mobility is not so great with his knee so now I think he's not as interested in going back because he's like you know I've been all over the world like even though I have the time and I'm retired like I don't feel the need to go running around the world because I've done that already when I was a young man I did everything I wanted to do so there's really no point in me doing that. But I do think that there is a point in going back to where you started and reconnecting with that. Now, his last living aunt passed away this year. And so, like, I feel like he doesn't really feel any ties to go there. However, you know, his parents' house still stands in that village. And I think it would be great. Like, I, I keep saying we should have, like, a family go back. And it keeps getting put off. And I know I'm going to regret that if we don't do it. I don't think he will, but I think I would. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, have, have you been back to India since you've been here in the States? Oh, yeah, several times. Okay. Several times. Right. But I have, I have not been for the past several years now. It's been 15 years, I think, since I went back. But wow. after I came back, I went back and forth, back and forth. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I mean, I, I thought that, that's what most people did, you know, because a lot of relatives are still, um, you know, in your home country and things like that. Like I have a friend, my friend in high school was from Portugal and um, her parents did not even speak English. I don't know how her father worked with not speaking English. I think he was in construction or something like that and possibly worked with other Portuguese people that spoke English. And, and somehow this man was able to work his adult life without ever learning English. I find that like so amazing. Like, I don't think that could happen today, but they were always going back and forth, back and forth. They had a home there. They had relatives there. And one year I did the only time I ever was in Europe or really anywhere far away 
was when I went to Portugal with her when I was a teenager, we went and stayed at her family home. And it was the first time I had ever been out on my own element. And that is such a huge thing for, I think, that Americans should do. And even though that was like, you know, a European country, but it was still a culture shock for me because people didn't speak English, you know, um, and the people that did speak English didn't want to speak English to me. They're like, you're in my country, you speak my language. And I'm like, I'm on vacation. Like, who do you, right. how bright do you think I am? Like, that's not going to happen. <laughs> you know, so. More, maybe there needs to be more books about this kind of a immersion of going to another country and immerse, uh, immersing yourself there. I know there's Eat, Pray, Love, where she goes to the three countries. More books with different countries, I think, would be a way, one way to start mm-hmm. potentially exposing more people to this other world and wanting them to experience. I'm sorry, I'm moving. Um, I agree. And I would say I have a way more obnoxious idea than that, because that's like a good idea. But my idea that I think needs to happen in, in, for American youth is I would like to see them be forced to do a service. Meaning when you turn 18, you have to do either a year abroad somewhere in a service capacity or something to that effect. You have to go spend a year abroad, either working or in service somewhere because there's no way to get an education of the perspective of the, of us being a world culture. If you don't ever leave your culture, you know, and, and that being said, like I only went to Portugal and I've only been to like the Caribbean and Mexico and, and some places like that. But I think it's important and it would be really a good way for the youth of America to have like a little bit more compassion and be more broad-minded if they were able to travel. Cause I feel like the people in Europe and even in India, I feel like people in other parts of the world travel more than Americans do. Am I wrong there? Do you think I'm wrong there? I feel like a lot of young Americans don't really travel to faraway places like I feel like they travel to Florida or they go to the Caribbean but it or Hawaii but I don't see them really going to you know um India or Dubai or places like that what do you think am I wrong maybe I'm no, wrong, I don't but... I don't think you're wrong I, I I do not think you're wrong I just don't know why that is because you're absolutely right when I came to this country, everyone was shocked. Oh my God, you came all the way from India. And when I met people who hadn't even le- who hadn't been past 50 miles mm-hmm. of their home. Yeah. I mean, forget, forget, getting, I mean, not even getting out of the state, getting out of the city. Never even seen the ocean. <laughs> Never seen past this little bubble that they're in. That totally mm-hmm. was mind blowing to me like what why what you haven't 
experience that like and then their field of vision is that's their field of vision right and then as you know everyone's field of vision is right well yeah true I mean and if so you're comfortable with if you're comfortable with that then that's fine for you but at the same time I think it would encourage us to act more as a world if we as young adults were introduced to the idea of needing to go somewhere different and like that should be a prerequisite before you go to college like you should have to spend that time somewhere else even if if the schools all did a year abroad and that could be very costly and I don't know how that you know, for, for a lot of Americans, it could be cost related why they don't travel. It is for me, partly. You get into that rut of wanting to be where in familiar surroundings, like everybody wants to feel comfortable, right? But at what point do you learn to be comfortable outside of your element? You know, that's part of like, learning and that's part of like your growth as a human being and everybody always says you know go out of your comfort zone that's when you're going to learn that's when you're going to feel um alive you know and you have to teach yourself to do that you know you have to either be forced to do it teach yourself to do it and you know if if you don't then you're going to get into that lazy you know mode of just you know being comfortable with you know, what, whatever you're normally doing. And I find that I'm a creature of habit. Like I like to do the same things. I like to drive the same route to work. Like that's insane. Like if, if I go outside of my route to work, like that's shocking to me. Like if I'm riding in the car with someone else that's going to my same destination and they don't go the way that I go, like I feel uncomfortable. That's crazy, but it's true. Cause like you get so used to doing things your own way. Like that familiar um, situation. Um, so I don't know, but for me, I, I I'm just, always, I'm always looking for a different way. So if you go a different way, mm-hmm. I'll be like, Oh, I will evaluate your way. And I'll say, I like this route better. Or I will say, you know, thank you for showing me this route, but I feel your route has more traffic. Right. And I prefer not to drive in this kind of traffic. I prefer to do this. So I'm going to go back to my route. But if they go in a different route and it's like, oh, I like this. <laughs> so that, that's me. I'm my, my character trait, my strongest character trait, actually, as a personality trait is curiosity. Mm. So I'm always looking for new things. I'm always looking for new ideas. I mean, I started a podcast, obviously, you know. Oh, that reminds me. Let me go back to asking you some more questions. Um, So one of the questions that I was going to ask you about, and I really went off track there as I started talking about my dad. But so do you think, have you thought about why you haven't gotten too deep into um, the Indian community in America? Is it just because, is there any personal reason why, or do you think it's just because you, you're in a new place and you feel comfortable in the life that you're in now? Like, do you miss certain aspects of that culture? And if so, which ones? 
I am not, I'm not vested in the Indian culture because I feel the Indian culture in a lot of ways, I feel it's done me wrong. I, um, I was married. I was originally married to an arranged marriage and it didn't work out and things like that. Oh, but wow. It's not just the marriage. It's the way the surroundings, the everything that took place to get a woman married and just everything else. And then the whole marriage itself, the whole patriarchy and who has the power and who has the right and a lot of it from my perspective is just doesn't settle well with me. So, so let I mean, me there are people this. who tell me that, no, no, this is a beautiful culture. I love my culture. My husband's wonderful. Mm-hmm. And this is wonderful. And that is wonderful. Right. Okay. If that's how you feel, more power to you. I just <laughs> never felt, right. I don't, I feel like I don't owe anything to a culture that doesn't owe me anything. No, you don't. You don't know anything. Um, so what was I going to ask you? It was about, um, oh, about the patriarchy. So I find it like, so let me ask you this. So your second husband, he's not Muslim though, correct? Well, he converted. He oh, is, he, he did? He converted. He's white. Oh, he's okay. He's American, but he did convert. Oh, okay. So okay. Married, like it was a that was one of the requirements that my parents like he has to convert and I was like okay fine and (laughs) you're 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 still backsliding there a little bit (laughs) but I mean I understand but 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 let me ask you this so how much of the patriarchy do you think is the culture versus the religion and how do you counteract that I I would suspect that since he converted he's probably not the same Muslim that someone that grew up in it would be? Could I be wrong? I don't know, because I know there's different levels within every religion of like, you know, different levels of of, uh, of what you observe and, and how you feel and how you act and um, et cetera. To me, like I always thought of uh, the Muslim religion of being also very patriarchal, which, um, is not like so how do how does that balance with your with um the indian culture because not all indians are muslim so you think it's more the culture or do you think that the religion had a a part to play in the patriarchy what's your oh, I absolutely take on that think it's the culture i don't think it's the religion at all okay i think okay. it's 100 percent the culture oh really and the primary because it is across all across all religions right in that culture no it it is um the primary religion is hinduism there and that religion and that culture is huge into the patriarchy so um the islamic religion i know it doesn't have the best um media coverage but in reality (laughs) if you really look deep into the religion there's a lot of respect for women don't get me wrong. Men don't follow it. I mean, it's all there. Men don't follow it. And when men don't follow it, the media picks up and goes, this is a bad religion. It's not bad religion. It's bad people. Um, right. So, but in, I think being in India, 
the patriarchy is very, very cultural. And, and if you look at Islam practiced in different cultures, it, it is different because right. culture mm-hmm. invades into the religion. So, ah, yeah, true. So I don't know if that answered true. the question, but yeah. yeah. No, 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 it did. Thanks. Um, so what else did I want to ask you? I wanted to ask you what, at what point did you, so just to give you a heads up, like for me, I, when I was a kid, I loved to read and I used to read a lot, especially between the ages of like eight and 12 or 13. And then became a teenager, was interested in other things. So I left reading for many, many years. And even though I read uh, books throughout my life, it was always like maybe two a year, something like that. So a couple of years ago, I just, um, I don't even know why, but I started, um, on the internet, just looking at what books were coming out for the new year. And it just snowballed for me, like snowballed into like this full-time, like, um, passion slash obsession for me. And, um, and then being brought into this whole community online and feeling like I have other people to talk to that enjoy the same things I do has been like life-changing for me. So like, I wanted to know at, at what point did books take that kind of role in your life or did they? And at what, like, what do you think was the catalyst? Cause I don't even know what the catalyst was for me, but how, how did you come into, cause I, I think I heard you say something like um, that books saved your life or books something you were saying something about that books. Um, I can't remember what your quote I think was. It might I'm have sorry. Been I don't want to my life or books have the ability to change my life or something like that. Something like that. So can you tell me a little bit about your um, journey with books? This is interesting <laughs> because this is what I ask <laughs> uh, people who are on my podcast. <laughs> journey with books. And I should have thought about this because it's like, this is the question I ask. Um <laughs> That's okay. Take your time. No pressure. <laughs> so when I was young, I don't know how or why I got into books and how or why I got into the library. At some point, someone must have taken me there. I don't have a recollection. It's probably around eight-ish. And I started getting into this one author called Enid Blyton. She's a British author because in India, everything's British. And Enid Blyton was just, mm-hmm. if you've met any person from India, who's a reader, it's Enid Blyton. I, it's, I can't even tell you how big Enid Blyton is. So I got into Enid Blyton's, um, she had a series of Naughty Amelia Jane, and it's about this doll, Amelia Jane, in this nursery, and she's the biggest and the meanest doll of them all. <laughs> and then it's just, you have this eight-year-old uh you know, this me as an eight-year-old girl, I just got into this naughty Amelia Jane story. And for as long as I can remember, so I'm a little girl. And when birthdays came around, all I wanted was more Amelia Jane books. That, that's all I wanted for my birthday when I was little. I mean, cool. I, I think in a lot of ways, that's what I still want as gifts, which is really, really <laughs> weird. I never really wanted this, you know, get me books and I'm happy. And what, I um, that, I oh, I'm so sorry. What what language were they written in? English. Oh, they were. Okay. 
All right. She was a, she was a British author. Oh, no kidding. Okay. I mean, uh, Annette Blyton was a British author, and she oh. wrote books for children all the way from young children, I think four or five, oh, all the way up to teens. So oh, after, cool. after Amelia Jane, I moved on and um, got into the famous five. It was uh, the classic. If you want to call it the canon, like, you know, you have the Sherlock Holmes canon, and then you have the pastiches. So the canon of the famous five was a set of 21 books. And it's five young kids with a dog. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm trying to think is Julian and whew, I can't remember the other two. George, Georgina, one more, and then Timothy's the dog. And they're always going on an adventure. It was just the funnest time ever. Well, <laughs> And then I, when I went into, now you have to think about this. When I'm in Dubai, I already switched schools. I'm constantly mm -hmm. switching. I, I don't know how many schools I, in Dubai, I switched two schools. So a mm -hmm. lot of things I started recognizing as a teenager in school is um, you got your bragging rights there through reading. You didn't have we didn't really have the the cool kids or the punky kids or I mean you had them but not as it's not as defined as in America at least I didn't know about it or the way my parents mm -hmm. raised me was like you know I had a sheltered life mm -hmm. but I felt bragging rights came from the books you read I would mm -hmm. have these kids go well I've read Rebecca Oh, well, I read Jane Eyre. Oh, my God. Did you read Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen? And this was all the classics as a teenager. Mm -hmm. This is what girls talked about. At least that's my perception of it. I mean, maybe girls talked about other things, but whoever I was hanging out with or the conversation I heard was always this. So here I am, and I'm like, oh, I finished The Famous Five. They're like, oh, that's so kiddy. I mean, like, we've read this and this, <laughs> this and it just it became this okay let me look into these books so i mm -hmm. i started reading at that point i mean i've always liked reading and i got into those books also as a bragging right thing and mm -hmm. i started loving them i mean as a teenager i read jane at three times and rebecca twice i haven't read them again but i read these books and i started reading more books and I was like okay well what about this book and I we were exchanging books it was just like became this thing and I'll and then I decided as a teenager I wanted to be an author and th that came it was really interesting because that came I did too yeah but for me it came as a again as a competition kind of a thing because a very good friend of mine in high school she wrote she would write and she'd write so well. And I don't know though, something about writing became a bragging right at that point. And she had this one sentence and I'll, and I don't know why the sentence stuck with me, but for all my years, I never got the sentence out of my head. It was the, the bus coughed up the street. <laughs> okay. So the visual of mm -hmm. the bus coughing up the street was just, beautiful and I just mm -hmm. thought to myself 
I don't write that well, but someday <laughs> I aspire to that. Uh, this is what right. I want. I want to aspire to buses coughing up streets. <laughs> that right, was, right. You know, oh, that yeah. That. And so I started writing and I started mm-hmm. writing poetry and things like that. And I just, and then I came to America and I, then I got into Daniel Steele and I'd read a lot of those, you know, the, romances and I just got into those mm-hmm. big time until my dad had been bragging in his office going oh my daughter reads a lot and they're like uh-huh. oh, what kind of books and they're like oh Daniel Steele and someone told him oh the junk romances oh no <laughs> and you're dad, like no no but I read it all <laughs> dad came home he was no more of these books oh my god that's no so funny. more well you think I don't know what you're reading and oh my god, it's hilarious. That was the end. <laughs> that was the end of Daniel Steele for me. Oh no. Because someone in his office decided to tell him that his daughter was reading junk romances. Which oh let's let's be honest, it is a junk it's romance. So it's funny. It is a guilty plug. Hey, let's be honest. Even a, right. a teenager. Okay, fine. So with Daniel Steele, <laughs> I read all her books till Zoya. I, I still remember, like I read every book that came out. And after Zoya <laughs> is when I stopped reading Daniel Steele. Well, I stopped Daniel Steele. I, I just, after that, <laughs> my memory really gets fuzzy because I got married and reading just became this fuzzy memory. And uh-huh. I just became this wannabe writer. Mm-hmm. More than reading, I wanted to be a writer. Mm-hmm. And throughout dental school I think I worked towards somewhere in the back of my mind I want to be a writer wasn't reading but I wanted to be a writer right which which was the most interesting thing because we all know if you Mm -hmm. want to be a good writer you better be a good reader I mean Mm -hmm. that's just the nature right so in dental school I'll never forget this I I was working on a novel, which I still have the first half of first draft of, three quarter of a first draft of. And um, I brought it up to one of my professors, like part of the scene. And this was Dr. Mm-hmm. Lancaster, amazing, amazing, amazing man. He passed away a few years ago. But mm-hmm. me and Dr. Lancaster had a, like, we had a fun relationship in that, you know, when I was an undergrad, like undergrad as in before I graduated from dental school, I was about fourth mm-hmm. year. I think I'd given it to him to read. He read it. And he approached me one day and he said, Shanaz. I said, yeah. And he says, I read what you gave me. I said, yeah. Very straight face. He had this very straight, very stern face. And he looked at me and he goes, what are you doing here? Dr. Lancaster? What do you mean? Mm-hmm. He goes, what are you doing here? Here? What is here? He goes, dental school. What are you doing in dental school <laughs> if you write so well? And I'm like, oh, thank you. Um, mm-hmm. It's just, I was like, well, you know, dental school. I mean, to be a dentist so I can, and he's like, you know, you're, you write very well. Just you know, really, that's something I don't even know what you're doing here if you could write so well. That's awesome to get and that kind of a so never testimonial. Like you know, it's always you have you always have 
people in your life and you have memories of people who have somehow propelled mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. Then I made, and I still think about it till today, I made one of the biggest mistakes of my life. And mm-hmm. that is, I'd given my book to an assistant or someone, and I don't remember who it was at, mm-hmm. at this point I was a, a general practice res- residency. Mm-hmm. And I'd given part of this work to this one young woman who read it and she loved it. Like she uh-huh. loved it. And that's when I made my first mistake is when she said to me, mm-hmm. my uncle is an editor for mm-hmm. this publishing company or something. Mm-hmm. Can I show it to him? And I said, absolutely not. Oh, why did you say that? Because when you're that age, you always believe you're never good enough. You know, you never, you don't look at this as, oh my God, this is like, what an opportunity. I mean, if nothing else, I would have gotten some feedback. I'd have gotten some direction, something. Right, right. But I just, I got afraid. I got freaked out. And I just, it's really funny because A, you're not good enough. B, which is another very interesting thing about getting somewhere, mm-hmm. which I'm, with my, with my podcast, I'm kind of okay if I become famous through it. But there is the fear of what if you succeed? People don't realize that people think there's fear of failure. For mm-hmm. me, there's both. I'm not mm-hmm. so afraid of failing. I am right. more terrified of succeeding, which is a really crazy concept. Like, like, what? In what way? Like, because success is an unknown. Failure is known. I know exactly what failure is like. I know exactly what it feels like to fall flat on my face and say the wrong thing and be embarrassed. I know exactly what it's like to write something and someone say, eh, it's okay, don't quit your day job or, or vice versa. I mean, I know what it's like to write something and people say, well, work on this some more and that kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it's like to be, to write something and to be swept away and suddenly someone says, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Come on, let's do this. And, and if it's someone with power, when I say with power, I mean book power, I mean publishing, editing. If someone said that to me, I would be afraid of where is my life going now? Right, right. And, and that I'm a control And there's freak. pressure. There's, I, yeah, and there's pressure and I'm a control freak. Right. So <laughs> I don't know what it was. It just, I don't know. I said no and I moved on. Well, well but you still have it, right? The manuscript? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I have it. It sucks. I just recently read it. It's totally <laughs> it does not <laughs> suck. Come on now. Just stop it. It does not suck. It doesn't suck. But you know what? You should really, you know, um, if there's things that, from your perspective now, don't look as good as they did back then, 
why don't you go back, revisit it, rework it, send it somewhere? You know, you have it, nothing to lose. You know, if you're used to failure, you have nothing to lose. I have nothing to lose. I'm, you do have nothing to lose. I am so you used know what? to failure. It's it's like failure is my middle name. No, but, it's not. You're you're a successful dentist. Well, stop it. You but, are you're very successful. Well, you have a great podcast. And well, but, but the interesting thing is. There's an author uh, who also I interviewed on my podcast, Amy Voltaire. She wrote a book, My Name is Erin and My Mom's an Addict. Uh, it was a YA book. And uh -huh. Amy was actually on my podcast. And Amy was on my podcast twice. Mm -hmm. So the second time Amy came on my podcast, I mentioned this whole thing about, oh, yeah, I was writing a book. Oh, yeah, it was 80,000 words. Yeah, and just kind of put it away. And Amy just about died she was like well wait did you say eighty thousand words and i said yeah because the interesting thing to me about the word count and oh my gosh it's eighty thousand words i'm looking at it now and i'm following instagram and i follow writers and i follow this nine nanorimo and all this and people think in terms of writing oh i wrote two thousand words today i wrote this but when i was writing this book mm -hmm. When I mean, and I here's the thing: I got very, very, very serious about this book in my 30s. That's when, in my 30s, I still wasn't reading many books. Mm. I was reading Harry Potter. Don't get me wrong; that that was the Harry Potter craze. So I was reading Harry Potter, but then I started writing this book. I even got a writing coach at that point. She was a nonfiction. Yes. She was a nonfiction person, but mm. I even paid her. I got a coach, and I was that's she put a schedule for me, mm -hmm. and that age I was still able to write without any difficulty see when I was a child like all through my teenage till my 30s mm -hmm. I could I could write like there would be no issue for me to write a first draft mm -hmm. like I can write 7,000 words a day if I wanted to that's how fast I write I mean, that that's, it's weird because writing has always been in my blood and, I, and um, I'm going to digress for two seconds. Mm -hmm. My, um, I always say this, that I don't write because I want to, I write because I don't have a choice. And that's, that was me. Actually, last night I was tossing and turning in bed and I was like 3 a.m. And this thing just kept coming at me, you know, and I just... Part of me is like, go to sleep. It, it's fine. You know, I know it was actually my uh, memoir, my book memoir. It's just uh -huh. kept coming at me like, you need to write this. You need to write this. You need to write this. It's at the back of my mind, like, I, and then it took me about a while to go back to sleep. I didn't get up and write. But that's something I always say. When I write, if I don't have a choice in it, it goes so fast. Like, I... Mm -hmm. I'd burn, I'd burn my keyboard out. That's how much I write. And um, so my niece, she has a blog and she put, mm -hmm. if you go to a blog, the very top of a blog, she writes, I don't write because I want to. I write because I don't have a choice. And I was like, I actually called her up on it and I said, where did you get this quote? Who said this quote? Because it was like, it sounds like something I would say. Mm -hmm. And she goes, auntie, you're always saying that. And I was like, oh, wow, you put me on your blog. That's so cute. Um, right. So I did that. And then anyway, with the 
with the quarantine and everything, I thought, I'm going to get back to writing. And so Amy was actually being my uh, accountability partner. And we decided the things I needed to write was A, to clean my desk, which I did. Then B, I had to print. Uh, a B, I had to read the book on writing, which oh. I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. C was to print out my old ma- manuscript and read it. And that's where I stopped because I was reading it and about 50 pages in, I was almost in tears. I was like, this sucks. Don't get me wrong. There are things in it that's really, there are great elements right. in it. Mm-hmm. There are great parts of the story that I love. And then a lot of it that I'm just like, there were chapters that I'm reading and I got this red pen while I'm reading it. I'm like, delete chapter or rewrite, you know, delete mm-hmm. chapter or rewrite. And then I've got like two or three pages, like rewrite <laughs> these scenes, you know, work on the, you know, that kind of a thing. And I stopped at about 50 pages on that. And, uh, and then I just got busy with life. I really wanted to, I thought, okay, I can read this and then get back into my mode of writing every day. But reading my manuscript almost took away my motivation from like, oh my gosh, this sucks, this is bad. Um, But then backed away and I thought, well, I'm gonna have to rewrite it, but let's get my stuff together for the office because I'm reopening soon and let's get all those things going. And also my reading suffered through the quarantine. So I've gotten Mm -hmm. back into the habit of reading again. I've gotten back into not as much as I used to, but close, a huge focus on reading and I'm trying to balance everything. So, and yeah. Yep. And that's it for this time. You can contact me through Instagram or Facebook on Living a Life Through Books. You can also send me a voice memo to my email at livingalifethroughbooks at gmail.com. You never know, I may feature your clip in a future episode. Please share this podcast with one other person. As simple as that, find one other person who would enjoy this podcast and tell them about it. I thank you in advance. Also, if you love the show, please leave me a review. I've made it easier for you guys. Go to ratethispodcast.com backslash living a life through books and follow the simple instructions. Again, I thank you for that. Or you can directly go to Apple Podcasts and write me a review, whichever way is easier. I will add the ratethispodcast.com backslash living a life through books in the show notes. The starting and ending music for this and all my previous episodes was composed by my husband, Brad Slavik. This is Dr. Shnaz Ahmed with Living a Life Through Books, signing off. Remember to water the seeds within you. It's time.